The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, author Scott Shapiro on the best and worst hacker movies. If you believe that mass surveillance of people in the United States by the intelligence community is a serious problem, then it really behooves you to actually get your facts even mildly straight. And that's what I found so unbelievably upsetting about the Snowden movie. That's what makes war games so special, because it taught us what to be afraid of, as opposed to tapping into what we were already afraid of. To preface our discussion, you will not learn how hacking works from the movies. You cannot trust what you see in Hollywood. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Scott Shapiro, welcome to Chatter. Thank you so much for having me, Shane. I'm really happy to be here. This is great. This is great. We're 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 talking in the middle of a very slow news week. Yeah, uh, <laughs> almost nothing. Almost nothing has happened. There was one submersible on, uh, but, but yeah, that's that was, it. That nothing. That was a short story. Right. Exactly. You know, it was it was totally like we've moved on from that. Uh, <laughs> but no, we're. Uh, I am. I am joining you from uh, from Washington, where I'm actually in the newsroom of the Post today. And are are you up in New Haven? What I would I have? I guess no, or have you actually, right, Yeah, right now I'm in an undisclosed location in New York city. Um, but, um, but, uh, during the, during the semester in the school year, I'm up in New Haven. Right. Right. And for those who don't know, Scott, you are a professor of philosophy at the Yale law school and director of the Yale center for law and philosophy at Yale's cybersecurity lab. How, how are law philosophy and cybersecurity all connected? I mean, that, that is, that, that's a combo. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Everything is connected. Um, I wish I could have said that <laughs> like in a, the internet. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Exactly. I wish I could have said that in a Matthew McConaughey uh, <laughs> uh, voice. Uh, so one of the things in the in a in this new book that I just published, Fancy Bear Goes Fishing. What I what I try to show is that um, we always focus on cybersecurity as though it were a technical problem that requires a technical solution, um, but rather. Um, the claim in the book is that uh, cybersecurity really ought to be seen primarily as like a human political problem, um, and the law can be incredibly useful for helping change the incentives that people have for 
creating bad code. Um, so law plays an, a very fundamental role. And also another thing that I try to argue is that hackers don't just exploit technical computer code, but they also manipulate the philosophical principles of computation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, the, the book is, uh, it, it, it's a story of five hacks, but it's also a story, an explanation of how these technologies work and why and how law uh, and various rules affect um, how we all act with our computers and how philosophy matters deeply for understanding at a, at a, at a very general, high abstract level, how all this stuff works. Uh, It's a fascinating book. And listeners of the Lawfare podcast, uh, if you haven't had a chance to check out Scott's interview with Jack Goldsmith, where they go through the book, it's really worth your time. And and it's a really engaging conversation uh, and an outstanding book, too. Um, We are going to go decidedly more lowbrow in this podcast. We're going to talk about movies. uh, As listeners know, my favorite subject. Um, And the reason I I had reached out to to Scott to ask you on is is you mentioned... uh, uh, a one of my favorite all time, you know, I guess we could call it hacker movies, war games in the book as kind of being a, uh, uh, I don't know, prototype is the wrong word, but, uh, you know, an important film in the history of computer hacking. So we're going to talk about that and some other hacker movies, maybe hacker TV shows, uh, maybe some real bombs out there uh, in the hacker genre. Um, But but before we do that, just briefly tell us a little bit. You've talked about like your work at at Yale and how these different fields intertwine. You write about that in the book. How did you get interested in hacking and hackers? Yes, sure. So I have a technical background. I, when I was young, I was I grew up during the personal computer revolution, so I, you know all through high school I, I coded and then I studied in computer uh, computer science and in college I had a computer company, so I did about ten years of serious coding. And then was this like I, in the nineties or like when did yeah. you graduate high school? Yeah, yeah, I, I graduated eighty two. Okay, and then um, so it really was when the Apple II and the TRS eighty all those things had come out, but I stopped. In, in the beginning of the 90s, um, thinking that uh, my future lay in jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I went to law school and got a PhD in philosophy. And then um, the previous book that I had written with my colleague, um, Ona Hathaway, um, was called The Internationalist. And it was a history of the laws of war over 400 years and from 1600 to 2014. And people kept on asking me, well, what about cyber war? What about cyber war? What about the next phase? So I started doing research in cyber war. And I, and despite the fact that I have a very strong background, um, technically I found the whole discussion completely um, opaque, um, very confusing. And I tried to figure out like, whoa, how does hacking work? And can hacking be a uh, an act of war, and what is this whole world like, and why is it so hard to figure out? As somebody who, like myself, um, you know, was pretty um, uh, educated in the fundamentals, I couldn't figure it out. So that's what mm-hmm. that's how I got into the whole um, into the whole thing. And I will just say, just to preface our discussion, you will not learn how hacking works from the movies. 
<laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. Yes. You may think you've learned how it works with the movies. Yeah, right. Like exactly. You, you, no. Yeah, you, you cannot trust what you see in Hollywood. <laughs> Not always. Sometimes it's fake. Team of Some, podcast. Yes, yes. Sometimes it's fake news. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, nevertheless, I mean, you know, Hollywood does uh, on occasion try to uh, project the image of the hacker onto the big screen. It is usually pretty cringe inducing. Not always though. And there are some of these films that are, are, are great entertainment and do kind of capture the zeitgeist as well, even if they don't necessarily get all of the technical details. Right. Um, so why don't we just, what should we jump in? Let's just, yeah, jump let's in. just, um, cause I mean, war games is like the origin story for, right. For, for for a lot of what's going on um, right and so let's 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 yes. talk about that so war games uh, for those who don't remember or didn't criminally if you have not seen this movie stop the podcast mm -hmm. now and go watch it no just kidding which absolutely again. absolutely <laughs> 1983 directed by john Badham, who also directed a saturday night fever for those who don't know uh wow. starring matthew broderick and ali sheedy uh with some great supporting roles including by dabney coleman who we'll talk about i'm sure in the discussion um War Games, the premise of it, just to refresh everybody, is this teenager who is, I think he's basically in like Silicon Valley, right? He's like in Sunnyvale, California, uh, played by Matthew Broderick. He's this sort of, you know, autodidact, we might even call him a hacker, prototypical, uh, who's kind of, you know, terrible in school. So he does things like breaks into the school grading system and changes all his grades to an A. Uh, and through a um, wild sequence of events, which Scott, maybe you can explain in some more detail, accidentally ends up basically tapping into NORAD and the U.S. Strategic Missile Command and nearly starts World War III. Great yeah. premise for a film. Um, so talk about this as kind of like the OG hacker film. Yeah, so 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 I, 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 I will, but I also want to just state that um, when you first, the way the movie opens is a kind of human in the loop. Oh yes, problem. Which is really incredible. Yeah, talk about it. It's such a good yeah. opening. Yeah, talk about it. Yeah, it's such a good opening, and it's also really relevant to what we're worried about right now. Not just in cyber when we talk about AI. So the movie is um, opens up, and you're you know there are these two. Um, middle, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, maybe men in their twenties and they're in the military and they go into a silo and all of a sudden there's a warning that mis Russian missiles are incoming and they have to decide, is this real or not? It's very interesting because they're like very subtle things that happen where, um, one person says to the other, oh, like he tried to buy marijuana. Um, and, uh, and then you're thinking to yourself, oh, that's interesting. So like he's, he, you know, at the time, of course, marijuana is illegal. Um, and, um, as it is still some places, um, and you're, you're thinking to yourself, oh, that's interesting. You like the guy who's in charge of stopping world war three has been smoking dope on the weekend. And so you're whatever. Okay. <laughs> They're just like bantering in the missile silo, right. And the, with all the computer banks everywhere. Yeah. Right. And then all of a sudden it happens and they have their authentication Two men, uh, the, you know, the two person, um, scheme and they, um, break open the codes and, the the guy who had smoked weed because maybe he was a bit chill 
um, he uh, says, um, hey, you know, he decides not to turn the key and launch. And um, and it turns out to be a a false signal, um, a false alarm. And so you're you're a, a big theme in the movie is do we want computers to be uh, set up so that they are automatic? Because one of the things that the computer scientists in this film represents there are two computer, Coleman, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, Dabney Coleman. There are two computer scientists. One is Dabney Coleman, who's um, he believes that the failure of the humans to actually launch shows that there's a vulnerability which should be. Um, patched by having a computer do the launch codes automatic, uh, uh, the launchers automatically once the president has signed off on it. Um, don't want humans in the loop. And you're, supp- and you're supposed to think that this seems like a very bad idea not to have humans in the loop. And the other computer scientist who's the genius, Dr. Falcon, he's the one who is the human with Matthew Broderick who will eventually stop it. So the first thing to appreciate is as it's so current because the concern seems to be about artificial intelligence and the ways in which automation may make us much more unsafe in the name of security. Mm-hmm. So we want to beat the Russians and yet we're putting ourselves at the mercy of these computers that, that, that we can't control. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is that, um, so Matthew Broderick is great. Um, it really, he does, he, it really is the stereotype of the hacker, but in this case, it probably is a more accurate, young, you know, adolescent, uh, high school, doesn't really pay attention to schoolwork, much more interested in playing with computers, and does what um, is now called war dialing. The technique is called war dialing, which is based on um, on the technique that Matthew Broderick uses, the, the name of his character is David Lightman. What he does is he takes a modem and he has a program which will uh, generate random um, uh, phone numbers, and then we'll dial them automatically, see if they're picked up by some remote computer. And if they are, he'll try to break into it either because there's no authentication, no security, or there's security that he guesses. So this is actually um, uh, when Target was um, uh, breached in 2013, I believe it was mm. because a guy was driving around from Target to Target randomly dialing uh, target numbers in the parking lot of, um, of targets um, and was able to breach a, um, a contractor and get in. So it's, it, it, he's, he's pulling a Matthew Broderick. It's yeah, he's, pu- he's pulling a Matthew Broderick. And the difference, uh, the, the reason why this is so OG is because not only is this a first time that you really kind of see hacking um, in a major motion picture, but um, somebody watches it before it comes out, and his name is Ronald Reagan, and he's president Mm -hmm. of the United States, and he sees it the Friday before it comes out, and he has a meeting with uh, George Chiefs of Staff and the top people um, in Congress in his office the next week, and he's like, hey, I just saw this movie called War Games. Do you think that this can happen? And he tasks the military uh, to try to figure out where this can happen, and uh, the general comes back. 
um, presumably reporting that for 20 years, the military has been very concerned with exactly this scenario and um, says, uh, Mr. President, we have a lot of work to do. That sounds like a scene in a movie too, right? Yes, I mean, exactly. And like how perfect too that Reagan, who, you know, obviously he was an actor. And, you know, if you talk to people who worked with him or you read biographies of him, he related through story. He related through allegory. I mean, seeing a movie and that prompting a policy question is like, that is classic Reagan. That kind of thing happened frequently. Um, and this was, you know, and this movie was, I mean, it was, it's in the film you know, it, he, Matthew Broderick's character essentially, you know, accesses this, this computer you're talking about, which has the great name, the Whopper, which stands for <laughs> War Operation Plan Response. It's not, the, it's not the Burger King hamburger. Right. Um, you know, and in the movie, it's like this big kind of black mainframe with this like how 9,000 kind of looking eyes on it and whatever. <laughs> and it's meant to be both like somewhat put you at ease, but also be kind of menacing. But the fact that he can, Matthew Broderick can get into it, and the conflict of the movie is that he basically, you know, sort of tricks the United States computer system into thinking that Russia is firing nuclear missiles at the U.S., which would then, of course, trigger, which they're not. But then the fear is that that would trigger an actual response by the U.S. and ignite World War III. So you can just imagine height of the Cold War, peak nuclear tensions between the Soviet Union and the United States. And the president sees this film and is rather alarmed by it. It is amazing that it never occurred to him that it might just be a movie. That is, it like <laughs> whether computers are capable of this kind of very high-level reasoning that I think we would be astonished today if GPT-4 could do. Um, what the movie presents is a situation where uh, anyone can get into NORAD. There's a secret artificial intelligence program that for some reason the um, genius computer scientist who built it decided never to disconnect it, um, didn't shut down the back door, and has astonishing reasoning capacity. Like um, things that um, you would be shocked if uh, ChatGPT3 or the kind of the AI bots that we've been using now could figure out that, you know, for example, that thermonuclear war um, cannot be played successfully, that it could figure that out is, is really, um, it would be remarkable if computers now could do it. It was certainly impossible back then. Um, so it's, it's an incredibly important historical artifact because this is what gets the ball rolling and leads to the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1986, which is the main federal statute um, against hacking. For the hearings on hacking laws, the, the chair of the committee played three minutes of war games to as congressional testimony. It just shows how, how backwards and how unfamiliar everyone was um, with this new digital ecosystem. What's really interesting is the fact that some genius computer scientists would create something so ahead of its time and then hook it up to a real system, missile system, forget it's there, not remove the back door, is just so beyond astonishing and would have the password be Joshua 
not even any special characters. Right. Who's the, who's the dead son of the guy who invented it? Yeah, it's just yeah. all too easy. It's, yeah. it's all it's all it's all all too easy. So, I mean, it's highly unrealistic, but it was salutary in the sense that it got people interested. There's a great scene that kind of gets at the idea like the machine is out of control. We can't control it. So they get to the end of this thing and they feel like they have averted the crisis and the Whopper starts basically taking over again. And they're all popping champagne corks at NORAD. And, uh, you know, the general just who's been running this whole thing just says, just unplug the goddamn thing. <laughs> and <then Tab> Nicole <laughs> was like, that won't work, general. Right. Uh, so it really it, it is the machine taking over. And then, you know, they have to basically teach it in the end that um, uh, strategic nuclear war is an unwinnable contest. And then Joshua, who is this, the computer actually talks, has this great uh, you know, line where he says, this is a strange game. The only way to win is not to play, which right. of course is the moral lesson of the film about the futility of nuclear war, which is the broader picture that the, that the movie is trying to make, but not necessarily, I think, the reason we all remember it. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 also interesting, by the way, to to see these movies from the 1980s because you forget how much, like, the whole culture hated the Russians, right. you know, the Soviets, right. the Soviets, the Soviets. They they were unbelievably ruthless, terrible. Um, and then when you get into the 2000s, we start seeing the the enemies of the United States change. But it is it is kind of um, from a national security perspective, you know, you think to yourself, okay, who have we decided is our main geopolitical enemy? And we're going to make them <laughs> the villain in the film. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Fun little point of trivia about the movie, too. The two guys in the missile silo in the beginning who uh, kind of lead off in the prologue, uh, played by Michael Madsen and John Spencer. So Michael Madsen of Quentin Tarantino film fame and John Spencer, best known as Leo McGarry, the White House chief of staff on the West Wing. So relatively unknown actors at the time, but they went on to bigger things. Yeah. Um, let's talk about another movie uh, that comes out, you know, a good 10 years later or so after War Games called Sneakers, which I have to say Sneakers kind of rates is one of my favorite spy movies of all time or like at least intrigue movies um movies directed by phil alden robinson who did field of dreams and the cast like just just this cast alone listen to this robert redford Sidney poitier ben kingsley david strathairn dan Aykroyd, river phoenix mary mcdonnell like that is the principal ensemble cast of this film truly like some of the greatest actors in history are in this movie that is basically about a unit of operatives who are like ex intel types probably worked at the nsa but many of them are computer hackers basically the movie is they're hired to go retrieve this mysterious black box turns out to be like this master encryption key that can break every code known to humanity and the people they think hired them are not really who we think they are there are like overtones of like Julian Assange in this movie. There is like, I feel like this film was like forecasting things, you know, that would come to pass years later. Um, but talk a little bit about your thoughts on this film and particularly kind of like, again, the role of the hacker. And, and is this like more accurate to how hacking works, do you think? Yeah. So I, I want to say there's so many things about this film which are interesting. As you mentioned, the cast is just crazy. 
just like just really um uh, you know all-star all-star cast that's that's the first thing what what i found um i uh, two things really struck me and it really goes to my background um the first thing is that i cannot believe how much illegal activity they're engaged in yes i mean yes. that that's i mean you know we're we're used to see used to seeing um criminals committing some crimes but this is like these people who are engaged in surveillance and are considered the good guys in the film, they are just rampantly <laughs> committing uh, wiretapping fraud, uh, you know, wire, yeah, just, yeah, trespass, like every single thing you can imagine uh, they are violating. And so that I found that really upsetting. <laughs> so that <was> the first thing. <laughs> it, it offended your delicate sense of private security yes, researchers it, it, are supposed to obey the law. Right, exactly. I mean, well, they were, I, I'm not sure that they were private security researchers. Well, that's I, true. They right. are, but they're a private yeah. security company. Yeah. yeah, they're a company, right. They are what we would call now pen testers. Yes, um, exactly. Right, right. You hire them to break into your system to prove how you can break into it so you can better protect it. Right. But it's, as you know, it's an unbelievably highly regulated process. Um, yes. and, and it takes a long time to set up because you have to give people authorization to do that. Anyway, I just let me just say that um, you know, um, I, I, I was a bit on the legal fainting couch on that. One. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, the second thing that I found was re really interesting slash annoying is that, so the, as you pointed out, the whole plot revolves around getting a black box that has some kind of encryption, something, uh, which you don't really explain that can break all the encryption mm -hmm. in, in the United States though the idea is supposed to be that it's supposed to break Russian encryption, but right, it's really right. uh, only useful for breaking American encryption. And so the subtext of the film is really, you can't trust the intelligence agencies. They really want to spy on Americans, though, of course, the heroes of this movie are people who are spying on Americans. Uh, right. So, so that, that there's a, but the, the, but the mathematician is represented as like a, just an, utter like flamboyant you know genius diva so so the idea is that there's a there's a mathematician in there and he has long hair um and he speaks with the foreign accent and he's has this algorithm that is going to be his cryptographer and he has this mathematical cryptographical algorithm that's going to do something that's going to break all encryption in the united states and so that he's giving this talk and instead of standing in front of like a, a PowerPoint, cause I'm not sure they have PowerPoint then, but like, instead of like an overlay or a green or, or a screen that he's standing in front of like this projector, that's just projecting um, math, mathematical symbols on him. And he doesn't actually report any results. He keeps on saying what we will be able to do in the future. And this opens up the intriguing possibility that we'll be able to, and I thought, you know, any mathematician that's giving a paper would never talk about the intriguing possibility that they would just show you the theorem, you know? So like, this is, the, the, that the, would not be for a movie, Scott. Okay. Well, I'm just saying, I'm just saying I, the idea that mathematicians are charismatic. Okay. Or, <laughs> That's or, the biggest fiction of all. Right, right, right. Or that there's like, they would like build up 
suspense instead of just telling you the theorem it, it was it was uh, I, that also i was on the my academic fainting couch for that right, um, right. but 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 what's really interesting is they don't call what they're doing hacking they call it sneaking and sneaking. it really it, and it really shows one of the things that we forget um which is that so much penetration um we, we always think about hackers from a halfway around the world but there are lots and lots of um, hacks that happen because of physical intrusion, mm -hmm. fooling guards and getting into the building and learning about the actual authentication procedure, security procedures, and perhaps security data that will allow them to maybe hack when they're in there or hack when they're outside of it. Um, I was just on a, a radio show with this uh, woman, Jenny Radcliffe, who she just published a book called People Hacker, and her that this is her this was her job is what the sneakers people did, which is that she would trick people into letting her into the uh, to their corporate headquarters, and then would gather information once she got inside there. Um, and her techniques were were very clever. Um, but this this happens all the time um, in 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 the world of security, and the people in, at sneakers um, um, uh, show you how much of that would need to be done in order to get into a facility. Yeah, and there's there's this great scene that is perfectly illustrates that where Mary McDonald, who is sort of the ex-girlfriend of the Robert Redford character, she agrees to help them by going on this date with a guy who works at the facility they're trying to break into. And the way you get in, if you're an employee there, is you go up to the computer and it scans your badge and everything. But you also have to give it a voice prompt, which is, my voice is my passport, recognize me. And so she has to trick him into saying each of those individual words at some point during the date while she's recording them so that they can go back and splice it together I, later. And there's a great scene where she's like trying to get him to say the word passport. And it's just it's hilarious. But you're so right. Yeah. And it kind of forecasts even like Mission Impossible, where they're trying to break into the facility, the physical access component of a hacker movie. Yeah, absolutely. But but and I'm so glad you brought up that thing about the recording him saying passport because everyone now of course with ai is talking about the way in which ai is going to be help us you know break for the first time biometric authentication so voice cloning deep fakes on faces um fingerprint generation well you know what like this movie is 1992 and they were doing that you know, with tape recorders. Yeah. Um, and so it is really, really interesting, you know, that these ideas were really prefigured way beforehand. And what's also incredibly interesting is that the authentication that they use are not passwords. He, he the, the way they get in is they steal a card, a key card, and then uh, record the guy's voice print. Those are two factors, things you own, and things you are, um, which are supposed to be very, very secure. And we always think about passwords as being insecure, but passwords would have been the thing that probably would have stopped this. Um, and so it, it just, it just, it shows the ways in which um, all the attacks that we're worried about now, biometric imitation, you know, the, the, these have been around for a long time. Also, I just wanted to point this out. 
Um, we have learned a lot as a society about head injuries um, yeah. because um, uh, Robert Redford is constantly being knocked unconscious for very long times repeatedly <laughs> without, without him um, suffering major neurological damage. So that, I just want to say that like you can't if, – if, if you get knocked unconscious like that's really bad. But if you get knocked unconscious for like a couple of hours, that's like ICU. Um, anyway, so that um, let, 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 let's let's stop that for, for the moment. You are, just, you are nitpicking. I love no, it. It's I, I know, but you know, it, um, you know, head injuries are really um, uh, very scary, bad things, and and, yes. they're to, and they're not to be taken lightly. Right. Right. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry. And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. 
and I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And it, it, this movie also reminds me, there's a much earlier film, um, uh, The Conversation with Gene Hackman. I don't know if you remember this movie or not, where it, it's a bit different. He's not a hacker. He's a surveillance operative. So his gear is all microphones and radios and things like this. And it's a great kind of 70s paranoia conspiracy film. But it also it gets at this idea of the physicality of surveillance and of like trying to steal things from people. In his case, he has to physically get close to them or be within eyesight of them. And I think as like, for me, as hacker movies go on, and we'll get to this with the Die Hard movie, they become so all about somebody sitting in front of a computer terminal. Yeah. And it just becomes so remote from the, the physical nature of like really how espionage works and how surveillance actually does. And it just makes for a more boring movie. Like when it's just people sitting behind a computer and stuff blowing up, it's just not as exciting as, you know, watching, you know, Robert Redford try to sneak into a building or Tom Cruise, like doing a trapeze number to like, you know, steal a, a microchip or something. Oh, absolutely. We're fi I mean, this is a big piece of hacker psychology, which is that if you don't see the harm you're, causing or the privacy you are invading, it is so much easier to do it. So not only is it less exciting um, from, a, from a cinematic perspective, it's psychologically, it's much easier to do. Um, actually putting yourself at risk by putting your body where you can get caught or to do something that will involve looking at somebody directly in their face and then doing something which is harmful to them, that is psychologically a much, much more uh, difficult activity. 
Yeah, and that's something that, and maybe you'll want to say a word about this. It's not a movie, but the TV series, uh, Mr. Robot. I thought that really captured that element of it. I mean, that's a movie where it's not just about hacking. It's about the effects of hacking and the social disruption. But, you know, I think the way they were able to sustain a narrative for that long, and I have any, I think it was like three or four seasons, was that it was not just people sitting behind terminals. Yes, I, I, absolutely. And it wasn't actually that physical either. So one of the things that we... We'll, we'll get to obviously we're going to talk about Die Hard Four, which is how unrealistic it is. Um, it's very very hard because hacking is a technical activity to portray it in a way that's meaningful to to the moviegoers. Because you know if you show people Linux command line, you know most people are not going to know what it is, and it's not going to be interesting to them. So you you have to. You have to do cinematically interesting things, um, and, and by that I don't mean typing quickly, because that's another way you convey um, how good a hacker is by how fast they type. Uh, <laughs> but one of the, exactly. one of the <laughs> right, so, and so the thing about Mr. Robot is that they actually had security professionals who did everything, and so it's actually enjoyable to watch it if you know what's happening, because it's fun to see the right tools and the right commands and the right switches right. being used, but. But ultimately, what I think um, uh, uh, Mr. Robot does well is that it um, uses music, it uses editing, and it uses plot to get you interested and to convey the suspense. So it's not that it can't be done. It's that it's much harder to do. Um, the earlier movies, we didn't talk about hackers um, or, you know, kind of even earlier films that try to represent hacking, but they often represent it as though it were a video game. Yeah. So there's a lot of graphics, a lot of things, you know, um, ships passing, bombs going off, when uh, hacking is really just looking at text command lines, just just characters up and down your screen, uh, very, very little uh, graphics going on. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about, uh, now we have to talk about Die Hard. Uh, the, the next film, Live Free or Die Hard, a.k.a. Die Hard 4, 2007, directed by Len Weissman, starring, of course, Bruce Willis, uh, Timothy Oliphant, and Justin Long. Um, probably not the most memorable in the Die Hard franchise. <laughs> I can't remember if it was the last one, but to situate people, too, contextually, this is 2007, you know, it's six years after 9-11. And this is also a period in America where I think it's safe to say, and I remember because a journalist covering this, Americans are just starting to kind of become very alert and paranoid to the idea that terrorists might not blow up buildings or fly planes into them, but will get into the internet and start breaking physical infrastructure and disrupting daily life. And so Die Hard kind of like smartly, I think, from the producers and the writer's point of view, enters this moment of kind of heightened paranoia about hacking in America in a kind of post 9-11 environment. So talk to us about this film and and, and what it what, what it gets right and wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. So um, watching it again, I hadn't realized, but the um, 
so here's the basic idea. The basic idea is you have this evil hacker, you know, somewhat demented um, person. Played by Timothy Oliphant, yeah. yeah to, Timothy Oliphant, um, who's really great in this. Um, yeah, he's terrific. Yeah, yeah he's, he's really ter- terrific. He's really kind of got that uh, cool, evil vibe down. And yeah. um, he is like an Edward Snowden type. So his backstory, according to the movie, is that he was security person and um, involved in intelligence and then sees how the internet is really, really insecure and fights to have the United States government rebuild it or the world rebuild it and is so upset that um, it's not being rebuilt that he decides to to show how easy it is to destroy the critical infrastructure of the United States, and so um, engages in you know what what they call in the movie a fire sale, which is to destroy the entire anything that's critical infrastructure. They're going to destroy. They're going to destroy the traffic light system. They're going to destroy train system. They're going to destroy the grid, the electrical grid. They're just going to create pandemonium across the United States, and. There was a great book um, written by um, a colleague of yours at the New York Times, David Sanger, called "The Perfect yeah. Weapon," and it's a it's a really great, great um, uh, book about um, cyber conflict, and it's called "The Perfect Weapon," which, in a way, I think is like misleading because cyber weapons are highly imperfect, um, and I think that's one of the things that this movie die hard for gets wrong. One of the things that you learn about cyber weapons is that they are very system specific. They're hyper specialized and they are designed to exploit something about somebody's setup um, that has some vulnerability. And so it, it turns out that you can hack into, let's say a security camera setup um, in my book, uh, the Mirai botnet involves um, uh, infiltrating security cameras. Um, it's also possible to infiltrate, um, at least um, theoretically, um, the traffic traffic system for right. a, a major metropolitan area. Right. What seems very highly unlikely is that you can do this in New York. Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles. That is that each of them are going to have very different configurations. And it's highly likely you're going to have to have a whole suite of these um, tools in order to hack into the digital infrastructure of the United States because we have a federal system and states have, you know, basically control um, their critical infrastructure and localities, they control their critical infrastructure. There's some, um, obviously, guidance um, um, at state and federal level. But, you know, the nice thing about the United States is that, like, it's a choose-your-own-adventure. And mm-hmm. so that that means that to hack all of it would be an unbelievably difficult thing to do. Another thing that you see in the movie is that um, somehow... Um, every single system has the same uh, user interface or GUI, a uh, graphical user interface. And so right. like 
that that any terrorist can just jump on the computer and like go into Boston's uh, traffic system and change it as if like the Boston system probably has its own setup and it probably has thousand glitches that you have to learn. Um, and the idea that anybody could just jump into a system and start playing around with it, even if they had gotten unauthorized access, that's just as highly um, unrealistic. Yeah, it's a feature of the the worst hacker movies that um, they treat the internet like it's this centrally controlled device that has a yeah. single point of access, which is, of course, I think just like playing on the public paranoia that that's what the internet is. It's like it's like the Whopper. It's this machine that's doing things and you can't see it. I mean, the net with Sandra Bullock, like great example of just yeah. like out of control, stupid paranoia about like, you know, like, I mean, they can track you everywhere. It's like enemy of the state with Will Smith and Gene Hackman is a kind of another example in the genre. But it's so interesting to me because like, they're not great movies, but they do speak to like in, in a kind of zeitgeisty way about what is terrifying Americans at the time possibly like what people like frankly in my profession are maybe misleading them about about what they should be scared about and so like i look at like live free or die hard and it feels like an opportunistic film it's like let's make a movie right now about what's scaring the crap out of people computers yeah, hackers turning the traffic lights off um and in that sense like yeah it's well executed and it's well acted um it also makes me think that there's, there's an interesting little parallel to draw in the second die hard film there's arguably an example of hacking, although maybe in a more analog way, that is actually, frankly, it's terrifying, and you could not do this after 9-11. I don't know if you remember this, but the, the villains in that movie, they physically tap into the cables that run into the air traffic control system, I think of the New York airport. So they basically take over air traffic control for the airport. Um, and they have their demands and they're holding the city hostage. And to demonstrate what they're capable of and the lengths they're willing to go, there's this terrible snowstorm because it's diehard. It's happening at Christmas. And they basically <laughs> they short circuit the tower. So they're the ones talking to this plane that's trying to land. And they trick the plane's guidance system into thinking that it's actually 200 feet higher in the air than it is. So they crash the plane and they kill everyone on the plane. And it, I mean, it's utterly terrifying and like, you right. can't like the, the, like the scale of violence and that it's an airplane. Again, you have a hard time doing it, but that's actually more accurate in terms of the way you would have to pinpoint it. Like you got to get into this wire that goes to this place, block this communication yes. as opposed to, you know, the whole, like just break into the internet model. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. Yes. So I want is I absolutely agree with everything you said. And just to, just to, pick up that's what makes war games so special because it taught us what to be afraid of as mm. opposed to tapping into what we were already afraid of and yeah. that is that is that's the mark of um some a great movie or book or something like that is to get you to care about something you didn't know you uh cared about that's the first thing second thing is i think that one of the things that the movie taps into is that the analog guy the older guy 
in some sense, is always the hero, mm -hmm. the guy that can figure it out. So John McClane, no more analog guy than that. Yep. Um, yep. But but somehow he stops the hackers. Same thing about um, you know uh, um, sneakers. Robert Redford is mainly, I mean, he hacks, but he's mainly a physical intrusion person. And um, you know, it, there there's this way in which um, we we as movie moviegoers kind of trust that the old tried and and, and trusted ways will, will actually save us from these newfangled uh technologies yeah yeah no it, it, it's it's it, and it's 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 interesting how few people few writers seem to really kind of nail it. I mean, we've talked about like war games and sneakers as being great examples of the genre. Live free or die hard. Yeah, it's kind of mixed. Um, let's bring us to the last film on our list. This is uh, 2016's Snowden, directed by Oliver Stone. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the star playing Snowden. Uh, Charlene Woodley, Melissa Leo, and Zachary Quinto. Excellent cast of actors. This film, I think we both agree, sucks. This film is terrible. <laughs> yeah, right. But, but can we, can we, uh, so can we both can we agree that it's so bad it's good? It's so bad it's good. Yes, hundred okay. percent. I will just say, like for my part, I remember watching this movie in the theater and, frankly, being skeptical because it's directed by Oliver Stone, who has lost his mind and had lost right. his mind long before he yeah, made right. the Snowden film. Right. Um, you know, uh, we could all say some words about Oliver Stone maybe in a bit, but really thinking like, God, this is not this is not going to be good. It's and just being mesmerized by how bad it was. <laughs> I would say just from this this from the standpoint of two of like of just how not only did it seem to misrepresent Snowden, but just like this bizarro, like paranoid culture of intelligence and all the things that, that Oliver Stone is kind of imagining about this world when, you know, actually had you just kind of stuck to more of the real story, it's, it's pretty compelling. You can watch the documentary Citizen Four by Laura Poitras, who is portrayed in the film, by the way, by Melissa Leo. Um, and, you know, and the film is clearly very sympathetic to Snowden, but it's a nail biter of a movie. It just kind of just follows the drama as it unfolded. Whereas, you know, Snowden, I said, oh, my God, it's just it's that, that is one of my chief complaints about it is just that, frankly, that Oliver Stone made it. But talk about Snowden and your special your special love hate for this film. Yeah. So I, I was to say, again, I, I really agree with you. Like, why they have to gild the lily? Yeah. So. um I, I thought it was horrible. I thought it was horrible because um, it like took like a bunch of numbers like 215702, <laughs> section 215, section 702, um, scary names like muscular and X key score, and then put it in a blender um, and then poured it on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. um, so like the first thing you get um, it, when when Snowden learns about the vast NSA um, capabilities, he's shown X-Keyscore. So X-Keyscore is a database of takes from the intelligence community that is accessible to certain analysts um, who have um, privileges to look at it. Um, and one of the things 
that this kind of pivotal part in the movie is when um, Snowden is involved in some field operation and this NSA analyst says, hey, come over. I'll show you everything about everything in the world and I'll show you women getting um, uh, undressed, uh, a Muslim woman getting undressed. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, you, and, and, and of course, Snowden is mesmerized, um, that there is a database that has information about everyone in the world. That's what is being portrayed as, as if there's right. everyone in the world. And then he says, how is this possible? Right. Cause I would like to know that too. How is this right. possible? <laughs> and what does the analyst say? He says, oh, it's all bulk collection. Mm-hmm. Right. So now, obviously, you know, but for and I'm sure a lot of lawfare um, uh, listeners know, but Section 215 of the Patriot Act, the business records provision was used at, at for, for a bunch of years under Bush and then under Obama as as hoovering up um, telephone records and the metadata um, associated with it um, and that there were kind of rules about when you were allowed to look at this database. There were very few people who were allowed to look at this database, um, but it was just the metadata. And just the metadata, it, it's, you know, through various types of analysis, you can learn a lot from metadata. But what was proceeded, what, what the analyst proceeded to show Snowden was not metadata. It was the actual contents of the, of the, um, of the communications and just it, there seemed to be no limit to where this analyst could go. Um, he's targeting a U.S. person, somebody who is in Oakland. Like this is not. This is like a very serious um, infraction. What I thought was the most interesting thing is is that there's no, there's absolutely no oversight. Like yeah. this person is just acting as though the NSA. Um, we're not a security organization. <laughs> like, there's right. just no way. Right, right, right. right. It's not like the NSA cares about privacy per se, but it's not going to give an analyst unfettered access to all the information. Um, that's a huge security risk. Um, and so um, when when he keeps on asking more about all this information, the analyst starts throwing out other names. They're saying, oh, muscular, prism, upstream. Now, these are all Section 702, not bulk collection, but targeted collection, which is extraordinarily different. Um, and so that really, you know, if if you believe that mass surveillance of people in the United States by the intelligence community is a serious problem, um, then it, it really behooves you to actually get your facts even mildly straight. Um, right. And that's what I found so unbelievably upsetting about the movie. And this is, and I think this, frankly, this, this, and this brings me back to Oliver Stone. I mean, Oliver Stone doesn't care about getting the facts straight. Right. I mean, and, and, it, and it's really, I mean, the movie I think we can go back to is kind of like what in a way sets this up is the movie JFK, which, I mean, we won't have to spend any time talking about that, but you know, I mean, this, it, it just a, it's a preposterous film. I mean, it is like every bizarro conspiracy theory that has been debunked, uh, you know, on the JFK assassination poured into a three and a half hour movie, which by the way, is a mesmerizing film. I mean, it's an incredibly, like, <clears throat> if you just forget about reality for a minute and, or for three and a half hours and follow along with another all-star cast, it is a riveting movie but like it's riveting in the way that you know 
and I don't know if you ever saw this, this, there's a documentary made after nine 11 that circulated on the internet called loose change, which became, was like a, basically a homemade documentary about how nine 11 was an inside job. It's mm. insane. It's incredibly compelling. So I think that Snowden suffers from the same problem that Oliver Stone is getting at, which is that he has an idea about how things work. He has a point he's trying to make, and he roots a narrative in history and says, screw the facts. And, right. and just and, and, and I think, you know, the danger of a film like this is that people go to see Snowden and they think, oh, so that's what this was all about. Like, that's yes. what his exposure was all yes. about. That's what this all means, because it's, you know, it's a mass market film. Uh, as opposed to like going and seeing Citizen Four, maybe and getting a, but maybe at least more factually based idea. Um, that actually gives us the opportunity to come back to okay, so what did what did Snowden reveal? Um, yes, please. I mean, and I, you know, it's so interesting because I was covering this, having just written a book about surveillance called The Watchers. Right. Which had come out a year or two before the Snowden leaks. And the first thing I thought when I was seeing some of the documents that he disclosed, and I wasn't at the post at the time where he gave some of them, was I think I wrote about this all in my book. Like this is, I mean, <laughs> right. I, we knew we knew a lot of this, right? Right, right. Um, you know, the initial leak about the court authorization regarding, I think it was like bulk collection, there was some newness to that and, and arguably some very deep public interest you know, journalism in that, and that as it was, you know, it was exposing as people didn't know about that were potentially, you know, legally dubious. But as, you know, as the more and more of the documents came out, I mean, and I was covering this at the time, kind of like two big overarching points, one that I realized at the time and one that I don't think I appreciated till later. One was that most of this stuff was PowerPoint presentations. It was internal documents that, yes, revealed, referred to real programs, and, and actual things that may have been going on, but they were arguably exaggerating some of the capabilities, possibly because these were made by people who were trying to impress their bosses and get their programs funded, right? So to say nothing of the expansiveness of NSA surveillance that that had showed, which I think, you know, we kind of all understood, frankly, and I had written a book about, a lot of these, I was looking at these PowerPoint documents and thinking to myself, we should not just be taking these as journalists as gospel, and writing off these the way we'd be writing off of like, this isn't the Pentagon Papers necessarily, right? This isn't right. even uh, um, the WikiLeaks cables, which showed actual documentation by people in the State Department talking to each other in real time. And I don't think journalists were skeptical enough of some of the documentation. That's one. The second thing I didn't appreciate this till later is what it actually showed, and this is going to make me sound like an NSA apologist, I know, that the NSA has an enormous and robust legal compliance division within the agency. Some of the things that were revealed about excesses by the documents that NSA excesses were actually things that the NSA had caught because of its compliance architecture, which is not to say that it's not perfect, uh, that it's perfect, but there is a basically a huge division of lawyers that are there to make sure that the NSA stays within the legal lines, which is not something that I think is a story that was really fully fleshed out in the midst of all of, of the reporting, some of which, including my own, I will say was overheated. Right. Yeah. I, so, yeah. So I, I'm glad I agree with you because you're the expert um, on this. Um, so um, I, I would say that one of the things that was definitely portrayed in the media and it is a big part of the Snowden film that Oliver Stone presenting is the idea that the NSA hacks other countries a lot. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that that's something that everyone should know. Like that's like maybe you should have learned it in maybe it should be taught in high school, mm-hmm. which is that there's this executive order called twelve triple three that basically gives the NSA carte blanche to hack outside of the United States. Um, and so the fact that um, operational details of this come out in the Snowden revelations, it, it, that that's of course new and bad, the details, but the fact that the NSA is doing its job um, should not have been um, new for people. The The thing that I think is was really new and this goes to what you were saying about the initial revelations about the Verizon uh, order for uh, Section 215, the bulk collection, and then Section 702, the second story, which was Section 702 targeted collection from social media companies like like Google. Um, I think I think what they revealed was that um, the that there was secret law being made. By the federal, uh, by, by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and people knew that b- business records were being collected. They just didn't know that all of them were being collected, right? And they, and, and they also didn't know the the kind of in, expansive interpretations of Section Seven Hundred Two that were allowing um, NSA to legally do what they were doing. And so, if anything. Um, I feel like what Snowden, the big um, value added that Snowden um, contributed was to, to, to basically tell us that the Obama administration was hacking, so to speak, the FISC, the Foreign mm. Intelligence Surveillance Court. Mm-hmm. They were using the secrecy provisions to push the boundaries of legal interpretation such that um, people didn't know what the law in fact authorized or not. As I, I think it's important to say that the rule of law does not require that we know what the NSA is doing, but we have to be able to know what we're allowing the NSA to do in order to know whether we should continue to allow them to do it. Um, and the fact that a secret court was basically acting as a regulator of uh, domestic intelligence and foreign intelligence surveillance. It, it, it was really bad. That having been said, I, I think it's really important when you point to the um, PowerPoint slides and you say, actually, you see that there are all these safeguards that are on the slide. So like in Snowden, the NSA analyst just types in um some keywords and see what pops up. Whereas the Snowden PowerPoint deck had slides showing about the the, the, the rather complicated oversight procedure that tasking um, anyone um, uh, has to go through. So by by the, by the Snow, Snowden's own revelations, there was a significant amount of of um, of uh, oversight. To what analysts were doing, so in a way that the um, the the film Oliver Stone's film is not even true to one to the things that Snowden revealed. Yeah, that's what's so maybe ultimately so disappointing about the movie because you know you had this you know esteemed director and you had this big Hollywood budget uh, and these actors is that it's 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 
such a letdown because it undermines in so many ways the real story of what Snowden was about. And it is an important story. I mean, there are things that Edward Snowden revealed that the public deserved to know. There are things that he added to our understanding about the expansiveness and the potential dangers, and in some cases, the real excesses of government surveillance and authority that the public has a right to know. The movie just doesn't do that. And I think it's, 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 I, and I, again, I guess, I mean, not to pick them all, pick on Oliver Stone. Why not? I feel like yeah, in the not? hands of a different director, a different writer, there was a real opportunity to make a film that was not only more honest about the facts, but actually was more educational. Yeah. And, you know, and, and in some ways, Snowden is like a great example of, you know, of, of a Hollywood disaster story, which, which is when, you know, when, 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 you know, people try to take on a fictionalized version of real and important events and just get it so terribly wrong. And then, you know, no one's going to want to pick this up again. Like no one's going to, I mean, it, it would, it would take a lot. It would be a very heavy lift to get another Edward Snowden movie, you know, made at this point. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just kind of such a shame that Oliver Stone kind of, you know, wrecked it. <laughs> right, <laughs> because, no. yeah. uh, absolutely. And let's not forget, like, I mean, well, I think he identifies uh, 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 being on the left. Um, uh, it, it's just, it's really interesting, at, you know, in the Trump era with QAnon and conspiracy theories and, and, and anti-vaxxers and all and RFK Jr. and all this stuff that this, the, you know, this was going on in the left. Um, I, uh, by the way, I, I identify center left. So, um, uh, so for people on left, there was this very strong, um, conspiracy, um, theory movement. Um, and we, 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 we forget that, um, that there was just a lot of crazy things being said about, um, what Bush was doing, what, um, the government was doing. Um, and, um, you know, uh, the mess we find ourselves in now has been brewing for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, as we wrap up here, just say a word because I mean, you you are you are an academic, you're a researcher and a scholar. Just say a word about. I mean, this is probably what you learned in writing your book. What does the academic research tell us on what hackers are really like? And we've talked about now fictional portrayals in several films and TV shows, but what does the research show? is kind of your, your, your typical characteristics of a hacker. Uh, th thanks for asking that, because I think it's really important. Again, we were talking about Oliver Stone and facts, so it would be good for me to um, present the facts, at least as the research uh, presents it. Um, so I think that there's a very big difference um, uh, between hackers from Eastern Europe and hackers from Western Europe in the United States. In the West, um, hackers tend to be much younger. Uh, they almost always are boys. Um, mm. They're almost always boys because um, uh, people get into hacking through gaming, um, cheat sheets, and 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 um, game modifications, and that draws them into the world of hacking. And the world of gaming is highly misogynistic. Uh, it's getting better, but the whole gamergate thing. Uh -huh. meant that the people who were on the pathway to hacking um, got 
um, a kind of selected to be basically male. That's the first thing. Number two is they they really are highly social, highly social online. Um, they don't necessarily, they are, they, ha- they run the gamut of psychological profiles. So they're not all have mer- multiple personality disorders like the person that Mr. Robot does. Some are good, some are bad. Um, they're not all geniuses. Um, and um, they typically age out. So, um, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, they get bored of it and they move on. It's the very, very few um, who kind of get caught up in it and stay caught up in it. Um, That's unusual. In the East, in Eastern Europe, they tend to be much older hackers, um, cyber criminals. And the reason is because um, so many people from Eastern Europe, they're it's, a, it's the problem of underemployment, overeducation. Mm. So these are the people, they don't have Googles or Metas or Twitters to go to. Um, and so there are some tech companies, but like most of them um, are doing IT if they can get it. Um, and they're trying to make money on the side. Um, and so um, the people who are involved in it um, feel like, okay, if I hack people in the West, I make some money. It's it's not a particularly interesting way to make money. Um, uh, Alice Hutchings, the uh, director of cyber secure cyber crime center up at Cambridge, has a great article called "Cyber Crime is Boring." Um, it's just like dealing with customer service requests and 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 managing um, uh, databases. Um, so um, people do it for the money, and so. Um, the idea of like the romantic figure who's in his basement and is overweight with the hoodie, that's, you know, there are some people like that, but that's not how hacking and security works. Hacking and security works normally through teams. Um, it, it, in legitimate industry, they're bigger teams. In the, the illegitimate industry, they're smaller teams, but they tend to be teams and they work together. Um, and at least for, uh, people in lesser developed tech economies, they tend to be older and are there just to make some money. And do we know, I mean, maybe this is hard to get at from a research perspective, but hackers who go to work for the government, right? Who go to work for Cyber Command or NSA or the CIA, do they, do we know if they follow the same kind of type and they just find their way into public service? Yeah. So I, uh, what, one of the things that has happened in the last five years, um, uh, is that, uh, different countries, the UK, um, the Netherlands, the United States have built these, uh, diversion programs for young hackers. Um, mm-hmm. they've built, uh, competitions, capture the flag, cyber Patriot, um, programs where they're trying to get these young, uh, hackers into the legitimate cybersecurity industry. Um, so that um, their skills can be used for, you know, the good side rather than the bad side. Um, so they are definitely uh, uh, being brought um, into it. Um, the last hack in the book, um, the Mirai, uh, the the Mirai botnet. Those three young men were then instead of being incarcerated, they were given five years community service and had been working with the FBI to catch um, 
cyber criminals and they're out on parole and mm. end of October. So um, I think that that's a great model for um, using people who have these skills and have made bad choices um, that they can be used um, to redeem their behavior. But that really only applies for those who show the ability to do it and who are don't have a, a host of other problems like problems with chemical dependency and things like that. I think you got the makings of a good movie right there, you know, <laughs> or a series. It's like Breaking Bad meets Mr. Robot. You know, who knows? I mean, it's it's they somebody in, in the right hands. This could be a very good story, actually. Yeah, yeah, I I I, I think so. Yeah. Um, well, our tradition here on Chatter, Scott, is that the very last question we ask one of our guests is a question pre-written question that we select at random from the chatter box, which because I'm in the office today is actually um, an envelope. So I'm going to reach in here. I'm shuffling the questions up. I'm going to pull one of these questions out and I'm going to ask you at random. Okay. This is, actually, this is a pretty good one too. This because this, this maybe gets away from the hacker discussion. Uh, what common misperception about your profession makes your blood boil? What do people get wrong about your, and take profession, however, which of your many hats you want to wear? Oh yeah. Um, uh, I guess I wouldn't say my blood boil, but it irritates me. Yeah. People think that I just like, I'm a teacher. Um, uh -huh. and, and, and I am a teacher. I teach, but that's like, like 2% of my job. Mm. Um, uh, I, I teach, you know, um, so this coming semester I'll be teaching three hours a week. So you're like, what do you do the other 37 hours? Um, and the, like kind of most of my job um, is research and talking to people uh, mm -hmm. about research um, and writing. Um, and so when people say, oh, so you're off for the summer. Um, no, I'm not <laughs> off for the summer. Uh, the summer is when I get to do the job that I'm supposed to do um, that I haven't been able to do. I love teaching and I think teaching is, you know, a great calling and I, and, and it is a calling, but most of my job is not that it's, um, it's a uh, shit posting on Twitter. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. I meant, <laughs> I, I, I meant uh, writing. You meant uh, on blue sky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, writing scholarly work to edify uh, the information society. Well, I, in your spare time, I'm glad you could come on here with me and talk about movies we love and hate. Yes, um, yes. It's, been, it's been a ton of fun. Scott Shapiro, the book is Fancy Beer Goes Fishing, The Dark History of the Information Age in Five Extraordinary Hacks. You should check it out. It's a great read. Read more about war games. We'll put links to all the movies we discussed in the show notes. Um, Scott, thanks for coming on Chatter. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Shane. I really, really enjoyed myself. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.